Not that I would do that. I would never make stuff up. No. <laughs> All right. So we're in the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, we just finished Romans. And if you remember with me, Romans really was just a letter to the Roman church. Uh, Paul planted church on his missionary journeys in the book of Acts. And we get kind of a, a broad brush sketch of his missionary journeys and all the places that he went, all the churches that he planted. And some of them he actually wasn't a part of. There were other men and women that were planting churches at the same time. So Paul, after planting these churches, is still interested in their well-being. Just like a father or a mother are interested in their children growing up and maturing into what they're, they're supposed to be in the Lord, uh, that's what Paul is in the church. He's interested in not just them being born, but being, them being brought to maturity. And there are times where Paul writes a letter like he did to Romans, where basically he had never met them, but he desired to go there. He knew there was a church there, and so he wrote some instruction. And he stayed real basic. But then there are also times where Paul wrote a letter because he had to. Maybe there were problems, there were issues in the church, and when he came to know about them, he was responsible for their well-being, and so he got involved. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I was growing up, there were times where my mom would notice some patterns of behavior or would notice some things that I was saying to her, and she would say, I'm going to tell your dad so that when he gets home, he's going to deal with you. And that's what was happening in the, in the Corinthian church. There were some divisions, there were some contentions, the word meaning, um, actually they were having some knockdown dragouts about how they were going to do church, uh, some of the things that they were going to major on. And so because of these problems, there was actually a woman in her household that wrote up a letter to Paul, and Paul was at this time in <coughs> Ephesus. He was on his third missionary journey, and so Paul, being in Ephesus, gets a letter from the household of Chloe. And in the letter that she wrote, she basically described all of the things that were going on in the church and that these were major problems. There was no unity. They were selfish. They were disagreeing with one another. And so because this is a major problem, this is a major problem because where people are following Jesus together, there should be unity. That's one of the signs of the Holy Spirit. There's unity in the church. This doesn't mean uniformity. There's a difference between uniformity and unity. Uniformity says everyone acts exactly the same. They all do the same stuff. They all have the plastered on smile on their face, like some of the cults that you see. But what Jesus brings in the church is unity because we're all going in the same direction. We've all been saved by him. We're all on a level playing field and we're all aiming to please him with our lives. So if that is in fact the case, the church will be healthy there will be unity. People will exercise their spiritual gifts, but they'll do it for the sake of love. And so Paul's going to address a lot of these overarching themes in the book of 1 Corinthians. But a pastor I listened to by the name of Ray Stedman, he died in, in 1992, but what he used to call this was First Californians. Well, he was a pastor in California. And while I know a lot of people, the minute you say California, they think of a very uh, loose living, let it rip, you know, whatever uh, is right in your own eyes kind of thing. Uh, but the reality is there are godly people in California, but believe it or not, uh, when we got ready to go a, a month or so ago, um, there was a guy I worked with, he was like, oh, you're going to California, huh? a bunch of weirdos out there. 
But there's a, lo- a lot of weirdos out there that love Jesus. Uh, there's a lot of weirdos here who love Jesus. And so, but Ray Stedman called it First Californians because that's where his church was from. And what he was saying was, he said, the letter to the Corinthians, the first one in particular, there's not a better letter to be able to address issues that happen in the churches in the United States. And that was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Now, even more so, the issues that Paul directly addresses in this letter apply to our culture. And we'll see that because when he announces the letter, when he says, hey, here's who I'm writing to, here's who's writing this, he says in verse 2 there, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who are in every place, excuse me, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus, both theirs and ours. He's saying, I'm writing this to the letter or to the, to the church in Corinth, but I'm also writing it to all the other churches. Because here's the reality. In every church there are problems. And if there's not, well, there probably is. It's just that nobody's addressed them. If it seems like a church is completely perfect, it's because they're just not being honest with themselves. There's always problems. Uh, and so what Paul does is he writes this letter, and he's kind of strong-handed. For the first six chapters, he's very rough on them. He, he wants to deal directly. He's not going to be subtle. He's going to just directly attack some of the issues that they're having. And then from chapter 7 to about 11, he explains and answers some of the questions that they actually put in their letter. Because they did have some questions, before, but before he deals with the questions, he wants to address specific issues he knows about. Things that need to be squelched. Things that are not okay to be in the church of God. And then from chapter 11 to the end, or 12 to the end, he spends some time dealing with and, and teaching them solutions to their problems. And I love this because in scripture, oftentimes what we end up with is more questions than answers. More uh, issues than actually fixes. But what Paul does is he doesn't leave them at the problem of, or at the place of, you're at a huge loss. He says, you can find your answers in following the Lord. And so we begin in chapter 1 with Paul greeting them, typically like he does. He writes it at the beginning because this letter is going to be in a scroll. And if you're like Paul and you're kind of wordy, to unroll the entire scroll to look at the end and see who wrote it is kind of a pain. So you go ahead and write it at the beginning. So he says in verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes our brother, to the church of God, this is who he's writing to, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth. Now, if you want to see the beginnings of the church in Corinth, turn with me real quick to Acts chapter 18. Because there in Acts chapter 18, we see Paul arriving for the first time in Corinth. And Corinth is a city, a very prominent city in Greece. It's second only to Rome itself. So in the Roman Empire, there are these very influential cities, one of which is Rome, and the second of which is is Corinth. It was a large city. And so 
Here in Acts chapter 18, Paul has just left the city of Athens, another very affluent city. Paul went to the major cities because he knew every major city had influence on the small cities surrounding them. So he would go to the large cities first in order that all the people that went to their, their stores and went to their ports and went to travel there would be impacted by the gospel by the people that were there and had been impacted themselves. So in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, he says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius, and this is a kind of historical note, he said, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. So, so Aquila and Priscilla had been commanded, hey, get out of our city. We don't want anything to do with you. And so they traveled and they ended up in the city of Corinth. So we oftentimes look at, you know, when we have to move because someone else forces us, it's a bad thing. But for Paul, who was on a missionary journey, Aquila and Priscilla ended up being a huge help in his ministry. So them being relocated against their will ended up being a huge blessing to Paul. So God is always weaving things, using the wrath of man to... Fulfill his purposes. And I love that because there's nothing that is an accident. There's nothing that's vainly done in the will of God. He's got reasons for it. And so Paul here meets up with them and it says he came to them, verse 3. So because he was of the same trade as they, he stayed with them and he worked. For by occupation they were tent makers. So while Paul was in Corinth, he wasn't paid by the church. When the church was planted, and as he stayed there, we're going to see for 18 months, he actually had his own secular job that provided for his daily needs. He was a tent maker by trade. And so as he was a tent maker, he was from a place that made tents. He met Aquila and Priscilla. They were Jews. He witnessed to them. They were saved, and they ended up serving together to build up the kingdom of God. So there they are working together, and he reasoned in the synagogue during this time every Sabbath, and he persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Now he's persuading them concerning Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of their Old Testament scriptures that we now have. So in verse 5, it says, When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, this is where Paul had previously been, this is where the church was in Philippi, you see the book to the Philippians, Timothy and Silas come and join him in Corinth, and Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. And that's not his last name, that's his title. He's the Messiah. He's the one that fulfilled all that their scriptures were about. He was the spotless lamb that died for the sins of the world. And so, verse 6 says, But when they opposed him, and they blasphemed, he shook his garments off, and he said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. So he shared the gospel with them, they rejected him, they profaned him, and he left. He said, okay, well I've told you, just so you know, you're responsible because you've now heard. Whether they believe it or not is never upon us, it's always upon them. They have the free will to respond to the gospel. But we also have to have the boldness to share it with them because our hands are not clean until we have told them. Until we've told them, their blood's on our hands in some ways. 
And so God has sent us as messengers just as he did Paul. But when they opposed him and they blasphemed, sorry, verse 7, and he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man by the name of Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was just next door to the synagogue. He just so happens to be next to the synagogue. He finds this man, and he was of, of this group called the God-fearers. Justice is a Greek man who fears God, and so he takes in Paul, and then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, just so happens to be next door, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, also believed, and they were baptized. So Paul is sharing Jesus with every person he comes into contact with, ends up finding a place to stay that just so happens to be right next to the synagogue, and as he's there and he's sharing Jesus with whoever comes up, the ruler of the synagogue is right there next to him and starts talking to Paul. And because of that, Paul explains to him from his previous understanding of God's Old Testament scriptures that Jesus fulfilled it, and he's convinced. The Spirit of the Lord opens the eyes of this man by the name of Crispus, and he becomes a Christian. And because of his influence on all the others that came to this synagogue, they became believers as well. You and I have been influenced by Jesus Christ, hopefully, by this point. And so we have a sphere of influence around us that if we will be faithful to share with them what we love, they'll come to love Jesus too. Or they won't be our friends anymore. God didn't come to bring peace but a sword to divide between the sheep and the goats. And sometimes we don't want to lose friends and so we're afraid and so we don't share the gospel with them. But if we don't share the gospel with them, here's what happens is we lose friends for eternity rather than just for a short time. And so I've been praying that God would give us the boldness to be vocal about our faith because it truly does make an impact because Paul stayed there for 18 months, but it seems at the very beginning, that's when the work started. Sometimes we want to wait till we build relationships with people and I think that's wise. But sometimes people, we just got to ask them, hey, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you know where you're going after you pass? Because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how much time we have with people. And Paul knew this and because of that, he made a large impact. And then this Crispus, because he's from the area, because he has relationships with other people, he had an impact on people that Paul could never reach. So many of the Corinthians, hearing the word of God, responding to it, they believed upon it, and because of that, they decided, I'm going to take the first step of faith. I'm going to be baptized. Now, baptism doesn't save you. And I want to make a point to say that because there are many who believe that the only way to be saved is to be baptized. I know lots of people who have been baptized who have never been born again. They've gone through the outward action and they've never received Christ. They have yet to submit their lives to the will of God. And so we need to be careful that we you know, equal baptism with salvation. And at the same time, in the life of the believer, one of the first steps that we can take in order to identify with Jesus as our Savior, to do it publicly, to proclaim to our friends, our families, the people around us, to our church, hey, I'm surrendered to the will of God now, is by allowing ourselves to go through that and to do as Jesus did by allowing ourselves to be placed under the water, to be raised up anew, to go through that outward action that shows that we've been changed inwardly. It's a humbling thing to let somebody dunk you under the water. But it's the first step. It's, it's, it's where we identify. So, now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. After all these amazing things have happened, 
The Lord speaks to Paul and he says this. He says, don't be afraid, but speak. Now I love this because we get a little insight into Paul. He is this hard pressing, this go-getter for the gospel. But it seems like the Lord's saying to this, God doesn't say things vainly. He doesn't say don't be afraid when Paul's not afraid. Paul was afraid. I like this. We get to see his humanity. He was a little bit afraid because he's in a, a city that is very affluent. There are many people in it. And, uh, and there's lots of darkness in Corinth. Corinth, to be a Corinthian means to be loose living. And I say that because I, I read it, but also because I remember we were doing this play called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum when I was in high school. And it was a Greek play. And it's, you know, they have tragedies and they have comedies. Well, this is kind of a, a slapstick, very funny, uh, uh, who's the guy that's in uh, Naked Gun or whatever? Uh, Leslie, Leslie Nielsen. Nielsen. He would have been in this play had they done it in his day. Just real slapstick, goofy. But in the play, there was one character, and I don't remember his name, but he was, when you read your notes and you're getting ready to study your lines, it said in there, this character is to be played in a Corinthian style meaning somebody that's always either sloshed or drunk or, you know, just loose living. He's very uh, fleshly, very ta talking about, you know, what he, who he was with last night or whatever. But he was a Corinthian. Being a Corinthian is synonymous with being someone who's loose living. And so uh, Paul is in a society that's very dark. It would be like, you know, if you've ever heard of somebody, and we met a couple of people when we were out in California at the pastor's conference, if you've ever met somebody that says, oh yeah, we planted a church in Las Vegas. And you're like, well, that must be interesting. You must have some interesting people come in. Well, that's because it's kind of synonymous. They call their city Sin City. And so you're like, okay, they know they're sinners. And we asked that pastor and, and his wife, like, what's it like to have a church in, in Las Vegas? And they were like, well, people know that they're sinners there. They're not denying it at all. But the problem is they have their own kind of problems because when people know that they're sinners, here's the reality, they're hardened to the gospel. That sin blinds us to the truth. And so uh, Paul here is in the middle of this city and, and the Lord says, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. When we're afraid, it sometimes causes us to not speak to those that we might fear. Or they, we might think they might mock us or something. No one will attack you to hurt you. This is something the Lord tells him. He says in verse 10, I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you for I have many people in this city. I am with you. This rings true to the promise. You can always know you're hearing from the Lord if it agrees with his word. Uh, there are people who will come along and say, God told me this and I need to tell you. Match it up with the word of God because this particular thing that the Lord tells him, he's going to go back to, you know, is this something that lines up with what God would say? Does it line up with his character? Does it line up with his will for my life? Well, this one does, because if you go back to the end of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew in chapter 28, he said, go therefore, make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he said, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And then he said this, he gave them a command and then he gave them a promise. He said, and lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. So he says, go and do this thing. And of course they're going, I can't do that. And he says, but I'll be with you. That's what's going to give you the ability to do what I've given you to do.
And so, in the same way, he's just reminding him of something that he's already told him. Paul, I'm going to be with you. I've sent you on this journey. You're supposed to be in Corinth at this time with these people, talking and sharing my love with them. Don't be afraid, but speak. And so he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So, finally, I told you we were going to be in 1 Corinthians, so go back to 1 Corinthians. Because Paul started on this third missionary journey, excuse me, from this point he departs. From what we just read in Acts, he departed from Corinth after 18 months, and then he traveled to Ephesus, and there he did another work. He said, Lord, I'm, I'm yours. I'm in Ephesus now. What do you want me to do? And every step of the way, the Lord was leading him. He was making them have interactions with people. Just like you and I, we've got a calling. God has a purpose for us being right where we're at right now. Whether it's at the school, whether it's at the license office, whether it's in your home, God's got a reason he's going to use you in a way that he's going to do it. And so oftentimes we're like, Lord, what's your will for my life? And sometimes we just need to go, Lord, I'm willing to be used today. How do you want to use me? And it might be going to town and country. It might be going to the gas station and talking to somebody. Each and every portion, there's nothing vain about it. It's, it's all interwoven in God's will. And so Paul knew this, and then he gets to Ephesus, and he starts a church there. But while he's there in Ephesus, he's on his third missionary journey, he gets this letter from Chloe's household that I mentioned earlier. While at Ephesus, a delegation visits him from the Corinthian church with news of their current condition. And unfortunately, it's bad news. It's tragic. It's, it's that they have lots of problems. Now, Paul has been planning churches for a while, so this probably doesn't just, you know, completely throw him off his rocker, but he's at the same time, he's moved, he's compelled to write them a letter to correct them. If you've ever had your children or someone else's children around you and they're doing something that's obviously wrong, any good parent knows that what you're going to do is you're going to stop right then and you're going to take some time to correct them so that they don't go off the deep end. Correcting them initially. And so Paul does this through this letter. Now their church was in a culture that worshipped pleasure and wisdom. And so that's what they were interested in. They wanted to feel good. They wanted to look good before men. And, and I don't know about you guys, but I think we live in a society where people are always searching after the next thing that will make them feel good. Uh, the Corinthian city was centered around this temple to a goddess by the name of Aphrodite. And Aphrodite was the goddess of love. It's kind of where we get our Valentine's Day from. It's got kind of a pagan origin to it. Now, I still get my wife a card. I still get her flowers, but I don't love her because of this kind of love. I love her because the Lord has brought us together. We can redeem those things. We don't have to tell people they're sinners because they're we're using this holiday. Um, but, but the cool thing is, is that, or not the, the not so cool thing, um, is that this temple was the center of their culture. And in this temple, what they would do is they would come in and they would bow down to the worship of passion and pleasure. And they would worship, in their, um, in their way of worship, they would actually get with a temple priestess. And I say that in big quotes because she was really a temple prostitute. They would pay money, they would go in there and worship Aphrodite. In order to worship Aphrodite, you would have to commit sexual acts, promiscuity, loose living with somebody that who knows where she's been. 
And so you would go into the temple, you would pay money, and you would pray to the god of Aphrodite while committing sexual acts. And so you could imagine that if it was like Vegas where prostitution is legal, people would flock there for that very reason. Paired with the fact that Corinth was on the north of Greece and it was a major port. And here's why. Because from Corinth, at Corinth, you could port there. And if you were a merchant or you had a ship, you had two options. You could sail all the way around Greece and get to the other side, which you needed to get to. Or you could pay a sum of money and they would portage your boat over this small piece of land. Kind of like the canal at Panama. In Panama. They had this little place. There was this crew that would come and they would dock your boat. They would somehow mechanically move it up on the shore. And they would portage it all the way to the other side. And it was just somewhere between 3 and 11 miles. I can't remember. It's been a while since I looked that up. But they would be able to move across there and save tons of time, tons of money, and they would get there quicker and deliver their goods so they wouldn't go bad. So because of that, these sailors would come into port, they would go to Corinth, and they would live it up. They'd get out all their money, they would, of course, have been on the ship for a long time, and they would do what sailors do. They'd get tattoos, they'd drink themselves silly, and of course, they would go and visit the Temple of Aphrodite because they've been alone for a long time. So you could see where the culture would be very hard to anything true or good or pure. And so this is a place where Paul got there and started the church. You can imagine the kind of problems that they're going to have just based on their background. You and I, when we receive the gospel, we've got our own backgrounds, right? Well, the church at Corinth was no different. They had their own temptations. They had their own desires. They had feasted on the things of the flesh for so long that they didn't know how to do anything else. And so while they were saved, Paul says there in verse 2 and 3, he says, to the church of God, he writes to them in Corinth, he says, to those who are sanctified, this assembly that's been called out of the darkness into the light has been cleansed by the Lord, called to be saints. You've got problems, but you're still called to be saints. You're not finished yet, but don't stop now. And then he says in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 4, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. I'm thankful because God has touched you. He's done a new thing. He's began this work of God in, in your heart. And he says, I also thank God that you are enriched. You are filled up with everything. Sorry, I lost my plate. You are enriched with everything by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. Paul wrote to the Roman church and he said, I don't need to tell you these things. I don't need to teach you these things because you already know them. He wasn't saying that they already understood them. He was saying you already know them because God's given his Holy Spirit to you to convict you when you are outside of his boundaries. And the Lord in the same way for these Corinthian believers, they were new believers, but God had given them the Holy Spirit, which gave them the knowledge of what's right and wrong. 
Not the conscience anymore, but the very Spirit of God that led Jesus through his three years of ministry was given to each and every believer at the time of their salvation. He gives that to us. He gives us the heart of the Father. And that heart of the Father is meant to convict us, not to condemn us. Conviction drives us to the Lord when we're wrong. Condemnation pushes us away. So the Holy Spirit is convicting you, is what he's saying. He says, I'm thankful for that. But then he says this, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's saying to them, look, you have problems and there's schisms or divisions in your church, but it comes from your individual walks with the Lord. He says to them, I know your church and I commend you because God's given you all knowledge. Anything you need to know about him, he's given that to you. He said he's given you all gifts. He's talking about spiritual gifts. Between Paul and Peter and some of the other New Testament writers, there are 18 gifts that God's given the New Testament through the Holy Spirit. These gifts were given to us to minister to one another and to build up the church. Paul says, you've got all those things. But then he's going to say, even though you have these things, you've still got issues. Because we assume that if people have the gifts of the Spirit, that means that they're mature in the Lord, that they're very spiritual. But what Paul is revealing to us through this letter to the Corinthians is that though these people have the gifts, though they have the knowledge God's given them, it is very easy for us to have those things and not walk in them. To know the truth and not practice it is useless. And so Paul, he's instructing them. He says, the Lord Jesus Christ will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. So here's the deal. They were saved, but they were trusting in the philosophies of the culture around them. See, the problem was is that the culture had pervaded itself into the church and was affecting how they did church. And the, what Paul's saying is you need to get rid of that because the culture is not faithful. You are not faithful. Jesus is faithful. You need him in order to continue in the way in which you've been born again. And so he says, I plead with you, verse 10, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Because here's the reality. All of the problems that we're going to read about in the first Corinthian letter, excuse me, I almost said the first Corinthian church. It's the first letter to the Corinthian church. There wasn't like first Baptist, second Baptist, first Corinthian, second Corinthian. It was the only church that he's writing to. But what he's saying here is that the main problem is that you guys have a God problem. You have a worship problem. Because the one who started the church was Jesus through me, he says, but, but you're continuing on in your own ways. Each one's seeking his own. Turn with me to James chapter 3 if you like. He's going to point out that their wisdom is not from God. In verse 13, it says there, he says, 
Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Self-seeking, envy, these are things that describe the Corinthian church. And it was what was causing the problems. Verse 16, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are present. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality, without showing favorites, without hypocrisy. He says, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If the church of God is called to make peace, and we don't have peace within our walls, how is the the Lord of all, the King of peace, going to be proclaimed from us? He can't. We're clouding the vision. And so Paul writing to them, he's saying, and notice from verse 1 all the way through 10, he uses this name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ our Lord. That phrase, I underlined it. It's six times from verse 1 all the way to 10. So what will fix their problems as a church would be that the Lord would be Lord of all and each one of them individually. And then as a result of that, he'll be the leader corporately. He'll be the one in charge. Uh, Fellowship has been described like this. It's two men or women in a boat going in the same direction. They're both rowing but they're both rowing to get to the same place. You ever been in a boat where two people are rowing and they're going all over the place because neither one actually has one particular place they're trying to get? One person's trying to go over here and the other one's trying to go over there. First time I went canoeing, it was like that. You know, Dad was telling me where to row because he knew where we were trying to go. And there needs to be one leader. And in discipleship and in fellowship, it's the same way. If we're all trying... And if we're all trying to please the Lord, we're all going to be going in one direction. We won't be fighting each other. We'll all be encouraging each other. Because if one person goes astray, we all do. And so that's what he's trying to tell them in this letter. And we're going to go through the first 17 verses this morning. So I'll stop in verse 17. But he says, I plead with you, verse 10, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, that those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. If you ever want to call someone out, you've got an issue with somebody, and you've gone to them, and then you've taken someone with you, and you've gone to them, and they won't change, and then you write a letter or you go talk to a pastor or someone about them, you want them to get involved, realize that if you're the one telling on them, that they're going to use your name. People have come to me before and say, hey, i got a problem with so-and-so. Will you deal with it? And I always ask the first question is, do you mind me mentioning that you brought this up to me? And if they say no, I won't address it. But if they say yes or I'll go with you, then I'll address it. Because the reality is, if you're going to call somebody out and you're not going to be there to do it, I'm not getting involved. If you're not going to approach them personally, and it's not come to that point, it's not ready to be dealt with yet. 
Sometimes uh, things need to be dealt with one-on-one before it becomes that big of a deal. But he says there, I've gotten this letter from Chloe's household that there are contentions among you. That word contentions, again, doesn't mean that they had a, a small disagreement. It meant they were having knockdown dragouts that was actually causing the church to split. And so Paul writes there, Yes, I also... Uh, there are contentions among you. Verse 12, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or the name of, that's Peter, or I am of Christ. So there's, there's four different people that they're claiming to follow. Paul, Peter, Apollos, and Christ. And you can see a lot of them. You know, Paul was the one that started this church. I'm following him. And then there were those that followed Apollos, because Apollos, Apollos, when Paul left, he became the pastor. And so they were like, hey, I, I don't follow Paul. He doesn't speak very well, but Apollos, he's just so well-spoken. He gets up there and he's just an orator. He, he's, he waxes so eloquent. And in their culture, that was something that they, they looked at and they were like, hey, this guy must be great. He can talk good, you know. Um, but then there were those that said, well, I follow Peter. You know, Peter... He's just so down to earth and he speaks his mind. He's the one that I can relate with. And then there were those that were very spiritual and they said, well, I only follow Jesus. And that sounds really great, except they were boasting about it. They were like, hey, I only follow Jesus and so uh, I don't have to listen to you. But here's the reality. If they were all following Jesus, if that even that small group was following Jesus, then what they would have to say and invest in the, the rest of the church would have caused there to be a humbling about everyone and a unity that would come from them truly laying down their own agendas, their own pride, and serving one another. If they were following Jesus, then it would have got rid of the whole issue in the first place. But they weren't. You see, they were boasting about it, saying, well, I only follow Jesus in order to measure themselves with each other. And so Paul, he's, he addresses this. He says, you all say that you follow these four guys, Is Christ divided? Is the church divided? Was Paul crucified for you? He says, was I crucified for you? Why are you following me? Follow Jesus. And then he says this, or were you baptized in my name? He says, I thank God, verse 14, that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. I didn't. Verse 16, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. I wonder if if the guy that was sitting there writing this down as he was dictating, Sosthenes, I wonder if he was like, hey, don't forget, you did baptize uh, the household of Stephanus. He says, besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. I can't remember. But verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. He says, I didn't come to you with the wisdom of the world. I didn't come to you to be eloquent or to prove to you that I was something great. He said, I came to tell you about Jesus. And if there's divisions in the church, then you really haven't grasped the lordship of Jesus. You're not following him because Jesus was willing to lay down his own life for the sake of others. He said, greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. And later in this letter, he's even going to talk about their spirituality. He said, you know, you guys have been given all the gifts. Some of you can prophesy. Some of you have the gift of tongues. Some of you have the gift of interpretation. And you're using all these gifts 
these gifts of helps, you know, uh, practically helping your neighbor. But what he says here is he says, you know, basically, if you have all these spiritual gifts, but you don't have love, it doesn't profit anything. You're doing these things to prove to each other how great you are. You miss the point that we're, our, our message is that we're, we're promoting the fact that God is great, that he is faithful, and he's the only one that we're to be following. And if each one of us, each week, day in and day out, would decide, today I'm going to follow Jesus. Here's the reality. God would use each one of us to bless each other. God would use each one of us in our lives, whether we agreed with everything that we do in our lives or not, we would want to bless one another because we'd be serving the King of Kings. We all have the same Father. We would look at each other through those eyes, through the eyes of grace and peace, not condoning sinful lifestyles, but loving each other enough, number one, to encourage one another, and number two, sometimes to go, hey, that thing you're doing, or that person you're hanging out with and doing those things, you need to stop that because this is not something that pleases the Lord. It wouldn't be because, hey, I don't think you should be doing that. It would be, I don't think that that honors the Lord. Maybe you need to turn around. And, and when we get to that spot, because we'll be encouraging one another, because we'll be serving the Lord, it won't matter whether that person disagrees or not because we'll be living to please Him. And so Paul is going to talk about next week basically the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. It's going to come to the conclusion at the end there that he said, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If you're going to follow anybody, follow the Lord, but really do it. And so this morning I want to ask you, as we were singing that song earlier, uh, I will worship. He says, I will, we were singing that song, I will worship only you, Lord. Who are you living to please? Are you living to please yourself, seeking after pleasure or comfort? Are you living to please your neighbor, trying to prove to them that you're something that you might, probably aren't? Or are you living to please the Lord? Because when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at one with him, to agree with him. Sometimes us leading people to the Lord will be because we're willing to lay down our own agendas because we're willing to serve them even though we don't agree with them, because we get along with somebody even though we're not exactly the same or have the, the same things in common. Paul's going to get ready to tell them, you guys need to, you need to be torn down. He's going to take all their wrong ideas. He's going he's to tear them down, and then he's going to build them back up with the foundation that is Christ. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 and 25 says, He who hears my words leans in and really gains them, listens to them, will be like the man who built his house upon the rock. When the winds crash and the waves blow, excuse me, when the waves crash and the winds blow, his foundation will not be eroded away. His house will stand. But he who does not hear my words, who listens to a Bible study week in and week out, reads his Bible every day, but doesn't listen for himself, will be like the man who built his house on sand. And when the waves crash and the winds blow, the house will not remain standing. And so what Paul's going to show them is your church, the people in it, are building their houses on sand. They're using the ways of the world to try to crutch up and, and splint up and use shims to hold up the body of Christ. But the only way that the body of Christ can remain standing is if he, in fact, is the cornerstone, if he's the foundation.
So, if your life is crumbling, if your life has been shaky, you might step back for a moment, take a few moments to think about it and say, Lord, why is my life shaking? If I'm truly founded upon you, then my life is going to be firm no matter what happens. Am I trusting in something that can't be trusted in? Have I deceived myself, called you Lord, and I'm not really living as if you are my Lord? Am I not getting my direction from you? And that's the question we should ask ourselves each morning. Lord, I'm yours, but show me the areas where I'm not yours. Is my heart divided? The church at Corinth was divided. Are your hearts divided? Because if your hearts are divided, our church will be just as divided as this one was. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the, the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians as a concerned father in the faith. He looked at this, this church, these children, these precious people that you redeemed by your blood, and he saw that if they didn't turn away from their worldly ways, that they would suffer shipwreck, that they would, uh, that they would miss out on the blessing that it is to be your church. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us individually that you would minister to us this week in our quiet times with you. Lord, help us to take that time to get to know you, to get to know your direction for our lives, to know what pleases you and to get on board with it. And as we do that, Lord, I pray for the grace to be able to carry out the things that we might be afraid to do, the things that we might be uh, nervous about. Uh, Lord, give us the faith to follow through with what you impress upon our hearts. And thank you for the reminder, even as you reminded Paul that you would be with us that you would uh, take care of you. You know, you've got many people down here in Arcadia Valley that uh, that, that are yours. Uh, those that have already surrendered to the call of salvation that need to be discipled, and those who have already surrendered to the call of salvation but haven't really entered in fully. And I know that there are many people that you've called us down here to reach that don't even know you yet, that have never heard the gospel, that have never known how much their Father in Heaven cares about them. So Lord, help us to get our own houses in order so that we can in fact make an impact on this community and the communities around us. And Lord willing, one day maybe we could even send out missionaries to other places and other countries. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your work in our hearts. Please, um, you are faithful. Complete that work. Continue as we have been saved. Continue to save us from ourselves. And Lord, we look forward to your coming kingdom. We look forward to being saved from death and this life. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.